it's one that I can watch and consume like a guilty pleasure, but it's not a guilty pleasure. listening to the Bright Wall Dark Room podcast, a space where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Veronica, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I just saw Spencer Ooh. and loved it. Thought it was astonishing. Thought Kristen Stewart was tremendous, actually. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of good things about that one. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I've heard a lot about Spencer this week. <laughs> I've heard about a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> But I haven't seen anything. I've not gone back to a movie theater yet, so I'm still trying to get over that hump. I know. I was just about to say. Yeah, but uh, I've been hearing enough things. I know your mileage may vary, but uh, about the French Dispatch, everyone mm. that knows the Bright Wall Dark Room stuff said, hey, it's about a bunch of knuckleheads trying to run a magazine. I was like, well, relatable. <laughs> so yeah, I'm interested in that one. And then obviously, we've liked Wes Anderson for a while. So, But it's good. Uh, and, and then a lot of writing this week, which has been nice. Yeah, I know. Do you want to say what you just finished? Yeah. I mean, we didn't plan this at all, but uh, okay. <laughs> no, I just wanted to say I, I finished the first thing that I've written in, in quite a while, like probably since COVID started, which is a big, big hump to get over mentally for me. So uh, we had the 100th issue, which we talked about last month, but um, it was uh, enough of a push. We had a lot of old contributors back and everybody came through. So I, I knew I couldn't drop the ball. So that, that got me over the finish line. But uh, yeah, so I published something on the Tree of Life this week. If you want to check it out on our website, um, rightwalldarkroom.com. I know that Chad is talking to the listeners because I have checked it out and it's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a beautiful essay on a beautiful film. <laughs> Our long silent guest, should we introduce her? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, join us today on the podcast. We have a very special guest. She's an associate editor at Brightwall Darkroom, an associate director of creative development at Pitchfork. And she's currently working on a biography of Elaine May that we're all so excited for. Uh, for St. Martin's Press, and uh, she's also one of the bigger Crossing Delancey stands and Pickleman fans on planet Earth, Carrie Corrigan. Welcome, Carrie. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. As soon as you said Pickleman fans, I was like, don't lose it, don't lose it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so glad when I wrote that. A lot of your letterbox reviews feature pickle-related commentary on this movie, so. <laughs> I realized that when you pulled up my letterbox receipts for this movie, I was like, oh, they are almost all Pickleman related <laughs> and they get increasingly uh more unhinged towards that direction yeah <laughs> we haven't even said what movie we're talking about oh yeah uh that well that's actually not just a random bio it's why we have carrie here today because we're talking about the movie crossing delancey i had actually never seen this movie and so i just saw it last night veronica go ahead and Tell us a little bit about the movie because you picked it and it was a great choice. Go. Oh, thank you. I thought you would like it because I know you're such a big Moonstruck fan. Yeah. And when I saw it, I was like, Moonstruck vibes, big time. Big time. It was something I'd been wanting to see because I heard it talked about, I think, on the Film Comment podcast like years ago. And oh, okay. when I heard the synopsis and the discussion, I thought, how have I never seen this film? And how have I never <laughs> even heard of it, actually? It was yeah. really, really shameful. So, okay. What do we have? Amy Irving plays 33-year-old bookseller Izzy Grossman. She's got a good job, an apartment to herself on the Upper West Side, a grandma, a.k.a. Ida, 
aka Bubby on the Lower East Side, <laughs> a crush on a Dutch novelist, Anton Moss, and a burgeoning maybe romance with a handsome pickle slinger, so handsome, named Sam Posner, whom she meets via marriage broker and spends the duration of the movie circling with suspicion, but also desire. It's adapted from the play by Susan Sandler, who also wrote the screenplay. It's Joan Micklin Silver's Jewish rom-com and a quintessential New York movie. It's streaming on HBO Go. <laughs> HBO Max. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, it's not HBO Go anymore, is it? No, that tells that you that I away. lost my membership when it... <laughs> left Amazon. It's hard labor streaming on services like that. So it's a, it's a good rare opportunity. That's why I wanted to plug it. I did rent it on Prime. Yeah, I yeah. did have to pony up the $3. But that being said, so Carrie, Chad did send me a screenshot of your Letterboxd receipts. And <laughs> I would love to know what brings you back to this movie so frequently. Kind of obsessively. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a movie that I didn't actually see for the first time until like last summer or early fall mm -hmm. sometime in core and it was one that I had been putting off for, for so long and the first time I watched it I was like oh this movie was made for me <laughs> it's got comfort food film vibes to me mm -hmm. yeah, and it's time. the kind of movie that it's like a comfort film but it's not stupid like I think with some comfort food <laughs> like films it, it's like easy to turn your brain off but this is one that it's like like mixed nuts or whatever mixed nuts is good chat <laughs> <laughs> separate pod but yes <laughs> But it's one that I can watch and consume like a guilty pleasure, but it's not a guilty pleasure, if that makes sense. Oh, that, I think that's really well said. That totally makes sense. I couldn't believe how smart and modern this movie seemed. Yeah, except for the music, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the music is not so great. Yeah. The roaches are great. What are you talking about? <laughs> True. Um, so <laughs> I don't think we've mentioned yet, but the theme for this month is Generations. And so Crossing Delancey, we were batting around a bunch of different ideas, but this movie, it's different generations of people who live in New York. It's continuing with a, the director's sort of interest in immigrant stories. We have this really great loving relationship, but also really tense relationship between Izzy and her grandma, who she's visiting constantly and like doing a lot of caretaking for but who also has sort of old world ideas about like how to snag a man, how to have a, a man at the center of your life. Only a dog should live alone. Only a dog should live alone. So many lines. And I love all the other just little moments where she's like being so old about things like uh, <laughs> like your naked legs when yes. um, Amy Irving has her skirt kind of pulled an inch above her knee on the park bench. Yeah, um, yeah so she's super old fashioned and Amy Irving's Izzy is like, this really modern, autonomous, but also really lonely woman. Yeah. And I think that combination of being kind of independent, but also like longing to be with someone at the same time feels really timeless and relatable, even though the movie is sort of concerned with being old fashioned and being modern and how there's a difference between them. Yes. That's very well said. <laughs> Don't let me lecture. Don't let me lecture. Yeah, no, it's great. No, I mean, I thought of you uh, when Izzy's saying, I have everything, I have a great life. I know famous authors. I just talked to Isaac Singer. He won the Nobel Prize. I don't need a man but holding my breath. And then, then the, I don't want to say it wrong. Bubby? That's right. Bubby? Okay. Uh, and so Bubby says, well, a professor, a college professor, and I, I thought of Veronica, uh, who I know oh. college professes, said, <laughs> <laughs> she says, a professor, a college professor once said, quote, if you're alone, you're sick. And I just thought that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie, why is this movie made for you? 
I mean, it hits all my buckets, but mostly I think. I love stories where women are simultaneously like, I'm fully independent in New York, and I am glad that I don't have to want all of the things that women were supposed to want, but also I want the things that women are supposed to want, and I mm -hmm. hate that sort of conflict. Mm -hmm. That sort of internal emotional conflict is really interesting to me, and I think this movie just hits it. That's definitely Carrie's wheelhouse, yeah. It's some of the stuff you've written for the site. I can see a lot. Working girl. But then there's also Peter Riegert, so. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> My God. He's so good. So attractive in this movie. I was going to ask you guys, have you seen Local Hero, though? Have you seen? I have. Okay. I haven't. I haven't. Oh, Veronica. Oh, man. You would love it. It's in the wheelhouse of all these movies. It's it's fantastic. Maybe I'll pull it up today. It's got such a great vibe. They're just related in my head, this and Local Hero and kind of all those movies. And I think Carrie probably has written or will write about all of them at some point. I hope so. I think it's vibes. Vibes. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> it's vibes. I think it's also they all fall into that category of those really great, smart, adult comedy dramas that were made in the late 80s that just aren't made anymore. Yeah, where are they? Like, there was a golden period of really, really wonderful films that were like romantic comedies for adults. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the adults are talking movies. <laughs> and now everything's so dumb. <laughs> yes. And you're not allowed to fall in love over like 32. Yeah. Well, there's also no uh, non super cheesy romantic story. I mean, they just don't, don't exist at all. Even if they're not smart, they just, you know, this is such a smart one. It's like, it's like a slice of life movie. That's what I always kind of think of as movie or Moonstruck as well. Because there's so many little details in there. Obviously, seen for the first time last night, it stood out where she just has scenes happen that don't need to happen just so that people can have little lines mm. that don't advance the plot in any way, but fill out this kind of characterological picture of this, like I always end up saying at some point, it takes a village. Like, I feel like I'm, this is another one of those village films where I just know a lot of the, the feelings. And I'm sure you guys have been to these places. I've never been to any of them. So I didn't have that sense of like, oh yeah, that place. But I felt like I knew the place so well just from the characters, which is such a cool thing, I think. Yeah, I love how we're introduced to Isabel's character. We're at this like book party, right? She works at this bookstore and they are celebrating. I mean, speaking of generations again, like staying in business as opposed to being redeveloped and retaining this like old school presence in New York. And that's like one way that we're introduced to her. But the better way I think is after when she goes home and there's a guy in the lobby of her building waiting for her and it's like her fuck buddy. <laughs> and then he's like, I could spend the night if you want. And she's like, where's Katrina? That's all she says. It's like, where's Katrina? Fair question. Presumably his wife or girlfriend. And he says, I think she's in um, Chicago. And she just goes, okay. And that's it. And it's this really sexy kind of tossed off like moment that just tells us so much about her character, how open-minded she is, how kind of modern she is. And that feels really emblematic of like how she's the new generation. She's like the young woman, like not just making it on her own and like working. She has crossed Delancey, I believe you would say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that you would in this context. But... <laughs> I do not know what I'm talking about here geographically. But they said that, you know, the old school like part and then like the upper hip Manhattan part and then you have to cross Delancey to get there. Is that right? Carrie, I'm going <laughs> to throw this to you because I, I don't live in New York, but you do. You have the New York geography down. The thing that's interesting to me about it geographically is like downtown, especially in the late 80s when this is set, 
was hip, except that sector of downtown, like the Lower East Side, old school, like where it was still not developed into luxury condos like it is now, but it was still mm. very much the mainstay of like the old world. So there was that one pocket of old school in hip downtown. It's always interesting to me that Izzy lives on the Upper West Side because even then it wasn't like, it wasn't hip. <laughs> <laughs> it's not? No, it's like, it's professor land. Yeah. Like, is this in Woody Allen, Elaine May, Nora Ephron area? That's where she lives, but I, I always thought that was just, like, a weird choice. Okay. Well, not a weird choice, because it makes sense if she's in publishing. But, I don't know, then to just, like, paint her as someone who was, like, also very hip and modern. I don't know. I would have pictured her living in Chelsea or something. <laughs> Veronica's nodding. <laughs> Somewhere that it's still like a mix of the intellectual crowd, but also like a party crowd. And it's nitpicking. It's geographical nitpicking. I mean, I was reading about the history of the play and there's just so much in there about the locations. of the. So this was like every one of these choices was so specifically made by the playwright who I think we mentioned also wrote the screenplay. So it seems like there's got to be some reason to locate her there that I'm curious why you guys think they would pick there then if it doesn't fit the character you're seeing. I think it fits aspirationally. Yeah, I think it fits. Okay. It's like thinking I want to be in publishing or I work around a lot of literary types. So I'm going to live where the literary types live. I also think it's a very grown up choice. Hmm. Totally. For the character, you mean? Yeah, that's what I would say. It doesn't feel like she's particularly hip so much as it's just trying to do this like uptown downtown thing mm. and to associate a certain part of downtown with Jewish. This is old school we have all these shots of like elders. Yeah. <laughs> it's also that downtown is like where immigrants are, right? Because we see her grandma go to, I think, a Korean grocery at one point or a grocery where at least like a Korean owner is there and sort of humors her while she does not speak Korean exactly to him. <laughs> and we see other sort of people of color. What about the sauna scene too? Like that did not have to be in a sauna, but I just put it in a sauna. Why not? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Though I think that that why is on the Upper West Side. Oh, okay. That's, that was specifically yeah. a YMCA? Okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's why you guys are on the podcast. I don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> well, I just Googled New York locations crossing to Lansing. <laughs> We're not supposed to, to say honest. that part. <laughs> I was curious because I've spent a lot of time in New York, but I was just curious, like some of the locations felt really real. And so I was wondering, are they still there? What happened to them? There's an amazing scene that I really want to talk about. So Isabel's birthday happens sort of yes. midway through the film. And one of the things that she's doing that's so weird is just fully lying about her life hmm. to her friends. She's a crush on this writer, Anton Moss, and he's a dick. <laughs> he seems, I think, to her like worldly, talented. She clearly loves being associated with this like literary world, which I think is sort of like the dorkiest thing about her character is when she, her bookstore owner, boss, Lionel, Lionel, who I cannot tell apart from John Lithgow at all. <laughs> they look exactly the same to me. He's throwing some stupid like literary salon. I feel like because I did an MFA in writing, I can say this um, <laughs> because I've been to stupid parties like this that are like yeah. terrible. That was supposed to be funny, right? Because I was laughing at just like how they were acting like, you know. I don't know, though, because Izzy seems very sincere when she she's kind of... She's very into it. Yeah. Yeah. Like Sam 
Posner is there and she kind of pulls him close and she's like, this is the best thing about my job. And I'm just like, girl, I don't know. (laughs) A little bit embarrassing, but she's this huge crush on this writer and it's her birthday and she's telling her friends that she's dating him, even though normally in a movie, I think the convention would be a character's lying to her friends and making her life sound better than it is because they're judgmental or like parents want you to be married and so you have a pretend fiance or something. But her friends are in the same boat. A lot of them are either married and not super happy or single and not super happy. And nobody's expecting her to be anything that she isn't. But then she just sort of has this fantasy life. Like she's like, yeah, I'm going to dinner at Lutece for my birthday. She's actually going to Papaya King and having a dog with extra sauerkraut, which brings us to this amazing scene. Yeah. Which are you going to tell us about it? (laughs) (laughs) I do agree. It's amazing. Carrie, tell us about the scene. (laughs) No, I love it. And I I agree. I think it's like interesting that she chooses to lie. I feel like because she lies to her friends at the bookstore and says she's going to Lutess. And it always struck me as like this like sort of aspirational, pretentious lie of like, especially on your birthday, like not wanting to admit that your life is maybe a little bit sad, even if going to like, I can't remember if it's Gray's Papaya or Papaya King. It's one of the papaya hot dog <laughs> places. Is that a thing? Is that is papaya like a franchise? I've never... They're, they're totally yeah. separate. Yeah. It's, but I, even if it's something that she enjoys doing and she's with her friend and this is just the low-key way she wants to spend her birthday, there's still something kind of like sad about saying that out loud to people who are your friends, but they're like your work friends. But anyway, she's getting a hot dog. She's in line. It's this crowded place. And this bag lady walks in and, like, drops her coat dramatically. She has all this, like, (laughs) insane makeup. She's just, like, the quintessential crazy street woman on New York who waltzes in and starts doing something batshit. And she starts singing (laughs) Some Enchanted Evening. And I love it that, like, there's some guy with a boombox playing and he he turns the boombox off. And they all, everyone in the restaurant, restaurant is a generous term, they all look at her and they watch her for like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and the camera lingers on her and there's so many great shots of just everyone watching. And then they go back to what they were doing and she keeps singing and it's just to me one of those really 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 great New York moments where it's like you acknowledge the crazy for like a split second and then the crazy continues and you've just like washed it out and you're like that's happening I'm getting back to business I'm <laughs> continuing to talk to my friend but in the movie Izzy is totally transfixed by it which is such a great shot and I think it's kind of like the turn in the movie where it's like the realization moment I guess there's some vigorous head nodding going on Veronica <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree that that's the turn of the movie. That's like the moment when she just mm. comes to grips with her loneliness. And I think the song Some Enchanted Evening, the pronoun in it would be her, never let her go um, in the lyric. Mm. And the way that Paula Lawrence, who plays the diva, as I think she's credited, <laughs> says it is never let him go. And so it does feel directly to Izzy and she looks so stricken Mm. when they have the reverse shot of her and it's also one of those great things where and this makes it feel like such a movie magic of the movies moment Mm. where it starts out and you're like oh what's this crazy woman gonna sing it's we're all just gonna have to sit here it's showtime type of thing (laughs) but 
then it's so virtuosic. Like she's so beautiful and her singing is totally delicate. And then the way it ends feels really plaintive. And it just feels like it's so much more than it started out being even within one minute. And to have this totally random episode seem like it's going to speak directly to you and address sort of the condition of your life, I also think of as being really New York, that the randomness can be in the same way that a horoscope is sort of like really <laughs> directed to you. You, you can receive it. <laughs> and you could also read patterns that might not be there, but they still feel very real. Totally. <laughs> I like that. But the idea of like, if you think of Moonstruck turning on that opera scene, and then this one turns on, you know, a similar, obviously not operatic performance, but in the same like ballpark of someone coming in. There's a way that a lot of movies that are smart also still use what otherwise would be this big cheat to the emotional core of things with the music. But if it's used smartly, it can absolutely just turn a whole movie. It was a dialogueless scene and you're just like the whole movie turns on that. That's when she realizes and you can tell. And they do it all through a woman coming into some kind of papaya thing and singing. It's not just music, I think. It's kind of meta in a way where it's almost in both examples commentary on how a performance can just strike you. It can just kick you in the gut in a way that feels so oddly personal. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, oh my God, this is speaking directly to me. <laughs> in this way where you are in the moment so focused on it and then afterwards you're kind of like looking around like did everyone else just have that same experience yeah. sort of thing? Which is so relatable. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, I, I'm contractually obliged to myself to always mention Margaret and there's that, you know, how Margaret ends at the opera. It's just like, I'm inventing a theory on this on the fly here, but dialogueless scenes where you, that advance the plot in huge ways and are emotional and just because there's a great piece of music and people watching that music brings out all this stuff. It's like magic. How do you do that? It's amazing. I do think there's a lot of scenes in this movie that operate without dialogue in really creative and like special ways. That opening scene too. Yeah, there's a moment. It's really quick, but there's this moment where all these women, all these single women are like in the yeah. kind of a grocery store or a bodega, like filling their little sad plastic containers with different sad salad bar items. And it's just basically all these like women eating salad alone. And it feels like one a moment where the movie is kind of populated by people who are reflecting the main character's kind of predicament in a certain way. Interesting. And there is such a strong directorial perspective in making that choice and in doing it sort of dialoguelessly um, and just having this communicative like interlude where this simple action just says like, the women of New York are alone. <laughs> <laughs> and eating salads. They're at the salad bar. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Let's talk about the love triangle. Yes. I got to get into the author. What a guy. He's a dick. <laughs> He's a dick. I mean, beyond that, he is, he is a very specific kind of, of dick. It's awesome. I get the appeal. I think the movie does a really good job of making him just such a jerk, but also <laughs> someone who is so alluring and you can see why somebody would fall for him. You can see why you would fall for him. But at the end of the day, you're like, one of those things where you're like, this guy is probably going to be bad for me, but I am attracted to it nonetheless. Yeah, I have fallen for him, <laughs> unfortunately, and live to tell the tale. But yeah, it's like we see him ordering off the dessert cart in French and... <laughs> So many wonderful choices, yeah. You know, like we're meeting him in some ways like through his author photo on the book, The Cave Dweller that he's written yeah. that's just everywhere in the mise-en-scene <laughs> because we spend so much time in her bookstore. That's one thing. And then Sam Posner, 
she gets set up with by the marriage broker. The marriage broker, importantly, is played by Sylvia Miles, Mm -hmm. who to me will forever be famous. I mean, she's done a lot of different things, but as the woman who puts crushed lithium on her ice cream in Sex (laughs) and the City, season five, episode one, an amazing moment because my best friend and I always say this to each other. She like puts the lithium on the ice cream. She's asking Carrie (laughs) if she's ever done this before. And Carrie's like, no, what are you even doing? Putting drugs in your ice cream. And she tastes it and she goes, oh, I love this. (laughs) 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 Delightful, exclamatory moment. And I'm amazed how much Sylvia Miles looks exactly the same to me, Mm. like from then and in the film. But anyway, so she plays marriage broker Hannah, who hooks up Sam Posner and Izzy and Sam Posner is just like the character so hot to me he's so articulate and confident and handsome but also the handsomeness is clearly not the sort of primary characteristic and he just has this way of like really looking at her and like a frankness in his comportment that is just incredibly hot to me and this is really like jumping to the end of the movie (laughs) but I really want to talk about this one moment because I realize it's adapted from a play and Mm -hmm. um, so the dialogue it doesn't actually strike me as super like talky uh, in the way that sometimes film screenplays that are adapted from plays make me feel very often yeah I just rewatched closer which 100% is the opposite of that never doesn't feel like a play (laughs) but there are a lot of great monologues in the film yeah and she has one Izzy at the beginning where she's talking about the merits of being an independent woman or she's sort of asserting the value of her own life even if she doesn't have a boyfriend or a husband but my favorite one is the one that Peter Reichert gets at the end of the film where he says something like I've been making wrong change all day to sort of convey that she's been on his mind, that this date that they're about Mm -hmm. to have has been on his (laughs) mind all day. And it's like, that line takes me out. That is one of the most romantic things I've ever heard. It just feels like the movie is never uncertain about like who you're supposed to want Izzy to be with, um, even if Anton Moss is sort of worldly and sophisticated, but ultimately a dick. It's interesting how he looks at her, the Sam Posner character, because of the contrast in my mind between how they continually set up the author as doing this so easy to see through kind of seductive, like look like he's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my look on you now. The movie starts with them looking at each other. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this like seductive, but totally you can see it's a move. It's fake. He does this to everybody. And then you've got this really earnest, like, I mean, his first kind of real talk with her when they meet up in their, I don't know what you call a marriage broking whatever they meet at for the first time that in the kitchen and he goes right to the you know that that story that's obviously about you know them but he's got this friend and then he ends it with like this hard fierce eye contact that's so real and genuine and it's the way that even those things are set up i think that's part of what we talk about why this movie is smart mm-hmm. i think it's doing so many little echoes and resonances throughout like that that they just kind of build in this really cool way that you have to pay a lot of attention to notice but i think is is pretty fascinating yeah i often find it kind of annoying when people are like some movie that's directed by a woman demonstrates the female gaze because it it just feels like a really like imprecise way to talk about what's happening. Laura Mulvey once said that. Well, it's usually said in a way that has nothing to do with what Laura Mulvey wrote about the male gaze. But in this movie, it does feel to me like there is a specifically female gaze at work because 
we see so many things from Isabel's perspective. Some of that is discussed, like when we see her seeing and her look is what prompts the camera to sort of cut to Sam with his bare hands Mm -hmm. and the pickle juice. And you can tell that she's totally (laughs) grossed out by that. But then there's also moments when she seems to see him and what we get is total desire like when she sees him playing handball <laughs> that's yes you got me to handball yay <laughs> i was not what i would think if i saw someone playing handball but um i just love how the whole movie seems totally like attentive to isabel's perspective mm-hmm. cinematically in this way that yeah. does feel like there's a female gaze at work yeah it's so great that she lets that moment play out when he comes over after the handball thing and he's like <laughs> She's like, what do you do? He's like, I'm in the middle of a game. And she's like, I can wait. And then he's like, okay. (laughs) And then he just goes back to the game. And then it plays for like a minute. And she just like lovingly gazes at him playing this ridiculous handball game with the cigar. It's so wonderful. I know. It's like that minute did not need to be in the movie, but she put it in. It's great. I definitely agree. There's um, a female gaze, if you will, at work. And I think it does a really good job of reflecting Izzy's internal conflicts between being attracted to someone and being repulsed by them at the same time and the sort of feeling of... I think the thing the film gets really, really, really right is that we see that Izzy is used to men who treat her like shit. And when Sam comes into the picture and he's this thoughtful guy, it's like, when you are used to somebody who is not good to you, a thoughtful, nice man, you're like, what? Get get away from me. Absolutely <laughs> not. This is a huge turnoff. Like... She's repulsed by it, but then I think there's also the conflict of being attracted to Anton because it's an aspirational attraction and it's kind of pretentious. It's kind of like imagining what your life would be like if you were important. Like if you were with somebody and being with someone gave you some sort of clout. Mm. It does a really good job of showing the mutual attraction to somebody who is out of your league and someone who you think is not in your league. Yeah, exactly. That push and pull. When the guy who is not in your league, of course, is like totally in your league and totally nice and to think that you're too good for someone is such an asshole thing to think. Mm -hmm. But we can all be assholes sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I I know what you mean. And I do think that um, it has to do too with the fact that she's set up with him, right? And that he seems to signify he's too downtown. It seems like Izzy is struggling with her Jewishness to some extent in the film, mm-hmm. maybe not in a sort of like religious way necessarily. Just like the old school, like the old traditions versus the new modern life. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't want your grandma to be right about what you need. To set you up with the pickle man. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, though, now that I'm saying it, I'm like, I wish someone would set me up with the pickle man. But <laughs> <laughs> it, I think when it's coming from family that you are sort of trying to be upwardly mobile away from to a certain extent extent exactly then of course you don't want that to be the person who's right for you no and like the title of the film too right it comes from this anecdote that he's telling her when she's in the process of rejecting him to his face Mm -hmm. about his friend was like crossing Delancey and his (laughs) hat got knocked off by the wind and he ends up getting a new hat and he's engaged the next day and the moral of the story is something like chance could bring about exactly what you need if you're just open to change but there's a way in which you also don't want some person that's trying to date you to tell you what you need because obviously they're going to say it's me (laughs) (laughs) you need to go on a date with me and even though it's a it's a rom-com so we kind of do want them to go out together but I do also understand and I think the film makes space for her resistance to that like she doesn't want to be told what to do exactly 
Though in other contexts with Anton, I feel like she very much is sort of interested in being told what to do right up until the point where he tries to make her his assistant Mm -hmm. after we know that he was (laughs) sleeping with his old assistant. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like a great exchange that they have after making out where he's like, I felt a kinship. One of his like horrible (laughs) courtly kind of overtures. So gross. Is this the plum part or not? Yeah. The plum part is so good. It's so good. And then she's like, you felt an administrative need, (laughs) which is, I mean, out of context could never make sense. And yet as a one liner, I would really like to like import into my repertoire. (laughs) It's such a great moment in the film because you're, you're waiting the entire time for her to sort of snap out of this starry eyed view that she has of him and, and stand up for herself. And it's just like, oh, finally, girl, like, (laughs) finally. Yes. But he doesn't pay attention to her. That's like, and it's so obvious as a viewer and you keep waiting for her to like, I mean, he has to go really, really, really far to like straight up saying, I'm going to hire you now before it's like, okay, I get what this is. But like, I think as viewers, we get what this is in like the first scene. Yeah. Like you can tell he's, he's set up as this, like, this is what he does. He goes to new cities and does this all over on his book tour. Yeah. I I love his reading when he starts to get into like, I'm going to read like a sex scene in front of all these people. Absolutely the worst. She has to go like cut him off. (laughs) The worst. I think we do have a sense that that's what he's like the whole time. But Mm. I also think that the movie's really smart about comparing what he's like with Izzy versus what Sam is like with Izzy. Yeah. And what that says about what she's attracted to and like how we should be valuing these men differently from how she's valuing them. And I'm thinking specifically of how he says to her something like, your stillness oh God. is so great. And it's it's what I measure my own, I think he says like jangly, kinetic or my movement, whatever, like your stasis, my movement. So he's basically just like, I'm noticing something about you because it makes me notice something about myself. Yeah, yeah. and look, he's like, you're my <laughs> ideal reader. I want you to read. And then he like sets her up on a pillow and makes her lay back to read yeah. it. You know, I mean, he's always right. very much like directing you energy. Uh, yeah. This also feels like this is his whole thing. He does this over and over with various people. That was my sense anyway. I don't know if I was way off. Well, the opposite of it would be at the end of the film when Sam says, how should I talk to Isabel? Yeah. He's totally keyed into her and it has nothing to do with who he thinks he is because Mm -hmm. he knows exactly who he is and I think that is something the film at the end of the day is sort of interested in is this identity that doesn't need to be proven by contrast or by departure from what's known like there's a way in which Sam knows himself it's something that Hannah the matchmaker was saying all along it's something that her grandma has suspected And the film is like siding with them, Mm -hmm. you know, move downtown, you know, (laughs) embrace your people, (laughs) just marry the pickle guy, you know, Yeah, feels really unambiguous about that. Well, there's such a great tension there, though, too, because she's like, if you look at her aspirational stuff of like, I want to move to the city and be this person who interviews Nobel Prize winners and, you know, has a hip life. Uh, And then she's like, I'm falling in love with the pickle guy from the old town. (laughs) And he is clearly the right one for me and I'm just going to deny that for the entire movie. I mean, you knew that the writer's going to do a really dick dick move. You can see that coming at some point. You don't know what it's going to be. But even then, when he comes back, like the word that comes to me about the Sam character is pretty much from the first scene, I, I think I can make the case that he just knows that she's going to eventually figure out they need to be together and he's waiting mm. pretty much the entire movie, but he's so patient. Mm. There's not too many scenes where he's just on her to be like, what are you doing with this guy? He's awful. He just kind of patiently waits her out, plays handball, you know, puts his pickles and stuff, puts the vanilla on him afterwards and waits for her to come around, you know? 
That's great. I think the interesting thing is he's never like, what are you doing with this guy? When he does have that confrontation with her, it's because he knows himself so well and he's kind of like, I don't deserve you treating me like shit. When he's like, you set me up with your friend like, and now you're going to try to make it seem like you're actually into me. Like, what are you doing here? Give me a straight answer. It's not focused on her and it's not like, what are you doing with your life and your choices? It's more like, how are your choices affecting me in a way that is disrespectful? It's a very healthy confrontation (laughs) in a way that like Anton would never do because Anton is all like, he would be like, why are you with this guy and not with me? They just set up such a contrast between this guy who's just so grounded and so sure of himself. And he seems to have no problem being a pickle guy, which is the best part. Like he doesn't feel bad that he's a pickle guy. He's like, I do pickles. I'm still unsure what he does with pickles. Like, what is he, does he, like, what does he... He is selling them. He he makes and sells them, Chad. They keep saying he's in business. Like, his business is just like, I get pickles and I sell them? Like, that's the whole business? He makes them. He makes them. Oh, he makes them. Okay. All those barrels of different kinds of pickles, different pickled vegetables. He exchanges them for money. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know a pickle guy was a thing. I thought Carrie was doing a bit on Letterboxd before I saw the movie. I was like, I need to figure out what this is. West Coast, we don't have pickle guys out here. But you do have Jews on the West Coast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, even in like farmer's markets or something, there's no like pickle stand. You've never come across a pickle vendor. There's assorted pickle things there. I don't know. There's specifically a pickle guy. No, I'm losing this one. But I I will say I, I have no exposure to pickle guys until last night. Well, you're welcome. Makes me sad. <laughs> but now I love them because this is the only pickle guy I know. And he's wonderful. <laughs> but yeah, that, that confidence is, uh, that's just the thing that's like, do not see many characters like that in movies from the start. Some people end up there. He just shows up there, which is so great. You can tell from like the first line. Mm-hmm. And she's, mean, meanwhile, you know, like, I think after the hat store, I'm not sure if this is a connection, but it felt like one. Mm-hmm. And like, he tells this whole story about buying a new hat. And then like, not too many scenes later, she shows up and what one character oh. says, oh, look, it's Annie Hall. But she she shows up with like a hat. Is that a connection? Like she got a new hat. He sent He got her. her the hat. Oh, okay. See, so I missed that part. Yeah. He got her the hat? Yes. What? Yeah. How did I miss that part? I was watching that part. He really, okay. I yeah. Was. She says to Ida, I'm being wooed. He mailed it. He like, he sent the package to her and I think uh, it had like, it either had a card or it was just because they knew they had that conversation. She knew it was him. Okay. Yeah. Somehow I did not put that together. So we're saying there's definitely a connection then. <laughs> Between the hat scene and the hat talk. Okay. There's a chain yeah. of possession. <laughs> okay. um, the thing about the hat that's weird, though, is he says something like, try something new, which is the point of the crossing Delancey's story mm-hmm. um, that his friend managed to, by chance, sort of end up having to try something new. And it ended up fitting him really well. And it was really like well suited. But it sort of is and isn't something new for Izzy, the idea of being with someone like Sam, right? In a way, it's kind of something old or something conventional or familiar or traditional. But at the same time for her, because she's so insistent and has all these lines in the film, especially early on, like it's like the people here live as if it's a hundred years ago. This is not my life. I don't live down here. As if Manhattan is so big. (laughs) And she just has this whole, like, this isn't my vibe type of thing. It's not my culture. When it clearly is. I don't know. That kind of tension between whether something is and isn't you or isn't isn't old or what your traditions are. That also seems to be something that Silver's really interested in. Very generational. Very generational. Yeah. I'll say really quick, because I have seen one film that I had no idea was 
hers, mm. which she made literally a year later, which I watched so much as a kid for some random reason called Loverboy with Patrick Dempsey. Have you guys seen that? It is bonkers. Like, I have seen that. I didn't realize that she made that. Exactly. Like the next year. She did a little known film, underrated Joan Micklin Silver <laughs> film, Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even. <laughs> okay. Iconic. Was that after? Yeah, like uh, 90 or 91 or something. Okay. So she kind of hit her apex right here. Starring Jenny Lewis. Oh, wow. Wow. A young Jenny Lewis, Adrian Shelley, Dan Futterman, Ben Savage, Griffin Dunn, David Strahan. Yeah. Interesting. Underrated film. But yeah, so her career was fascinating. But before that, uh, has anyone seen Hester Street? I know that Fran just saw that at the New York Film Festival. Yes. Oh. So I will say it's great. It's such a sister film to this movie. Like I, mm. after I saw Hester Street, after seeing Crossing Delancey, <laughs> I made the connection of like, oh, Crossing Delancey is just like a continuation of this story. Izzy is the great granddaughter of Carol Kane's character's name. I cannot remember. But like she's the distant relative of the protagonist in Hester Street. This is making a Joan Micklin Silver universe, cinematic universe kind of thing. <laughs> no, I think they're really tied in the generational sense of like characters who are struggling with the concept of like feeling like they need to shed completely their old identity to become who they want to become and not understanding how to incorporate their past and their heritage with their modern identity. Mm. Like thinking it's all or nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's really interesting that she worked on these kind of immigration stories for so long. But when I was doing a little bit of research, I saw that she used to make educational short films and she had a film in 1972 called The Immigrant Experience, A Long, Long Journey. (laughs) (laughs) If we're talking about the Nicklin Silver cinematic universe, as Carrie put it, does seem like it all kind of comes from there. In addition to the fact that her parents were Russian immigrants also, and she ended up co-founding a production company with her husband because she was struggling so much to find financing to make features, even though she had all this educational and short film experience. And her husband was basically like, this was a response to seeing how much she was struggling. And he got involved and was like, I will help you find the financing. And Hester Street, I think, was made for under 400000 but yeah. grossed like $5 million And still, even producing like Oscar nomination for Carol Kane, like nothing. It was just really, really hard. Nothing. Which is... Not at all surprising, but super, super sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big thing is if you look at the climate of Hollywood in the 70s for women, it was really not to like get on the Elaine soapbox. No, please do. Please do. It was really only (laughs) Elaine making studio films. And right before Hester Street, you have Elaine May making Mikey and Nikki and sort of like playing into all of the prejudices that male studio heads had and absolutely proving their point of the way they would say, you know, women are too erratic, women aren't disciplined enough to make films. And there's this great quote from like 1981 in the New York Times where they were talking about why women aren't making more movies. And this guy, Harry Olfand, (laughs) said, uh, it's easy to blame male chauvinism, but it's quite simply that no woman except Elaine May has ever made a good movie. And her last one, Mikey and Nikki, never got finished. Everyone knows how brilliant she is, but no one will trust her with a film. The rest of the women's 
stuff I've seen is just awful. There are other quotes, too, from, like, the late 70s, early 80s, where Elaine's name comes up being, like, she kind of proved the point, like, God forbid a woman have trouble on set, or she goes over budget, or, you know, she didn't shoot that day, and then men will say, oh, she was on her period, like, and it's maddening because you kind of think, like, it's so fucked up Mm. that it was, like, if one woman failed, she brought down the entire gender with her. Yeah. Because what a weight on your shoulders making a movie. It's not like any male directors then were like, if I fuck this movie up, (laughs) I'm going to set male directors back another, like, five years. I don't think Herbert Ross ever had that thought once in his life. (laughs) Not at all. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's just like, you. yeah, the the path uh, for Elaine May, as we all know, was was awful but Joan Micklin Silver's energy and I did like she seems linear in a way that Elaine May's not in her production process yeah <laughs> like it didn't seem to be a lot of chaos reading about her production history is a very uh, thankfully boring thing she just makes movies really well and just keeps trying to get them distributed couldn't get them distributed so her husband like Veronica said has to start this production company which he said which is a great little quote I found last night where he's like well, I grew this whole thing in real estate for 20 years, so I know how to like do that kind of stuff. So I was like, they won't let her make her movies, so I'm going to get her to make movies. And then you think, what did Elaine May not have that could have helped her do that? And that was like, again, it's so sad. A husband. But a guy in her corner to just step in and be like, I'm going to just push you into movies, Elaine. <laughs> well, know? I mean, she sort of did have, like she had Warren Beatty, like go to bat. She had a series of men. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she had a yeah. series of men. <laughs> Which is against, it's just so fucked up that like, the is. only way for a woman to get through is like having a powerful man or exactly. in Joe Micklin Silver's case, a man who was competent in fundraising, like <laughs> yes. push them through. Yeah, it's insane. In terms of crossing Delancey, it's not just her husband who's sort of enabling the film to get made. It's also Amy Irving's then husband, Steven Spielberg. Ooh, good call, yeah. Who was like, you should since my wife is going to be in this movie, uh, talk to someone at Warner Brothers. And that's how it happens. This always has to be a man show up, yeah. Yeah, it's totally sad that that's what needed to happen. And in interviews, she's been extremely candid about the difficulty of working in the early 1970s. And even though it's not necessarily like new information, I thought this thing she said in 1993's Calling the Shots, colon, Profiles of (laughs) Women Filmmakers, was, (laughs) they just could not resist, um, was really great. So she's talking about writing, I can't remember if it's the screenplay or the treatment for this film, Limbo which would be directed by Mark Robson. And she says that she was on set and then says, this is a direct quote, I still had this constant inclination as I watched the scenes to say no, no, no. It wasn't that he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, which was to use his own choices and his own rhythms and his own camera placements and all the rest. It's just that I saw the whole story so differently. And I love that. And the sort of insistence that her vision had value in Mm -hmm. its difference from what he would do and how sad that is that that vision was so curtailed and that it's taking, you know, us to this pod to sort of (laughs) pay attention to her and all the things that we're valuing about the film and its uniqueness and its kind of curated perspective and its modernness and its humor and its intelligence. All of that feels like exactly what's behind that kind of no, no, no that she's talking about. Yeah. And I think there's entirely a, another timeline or world where, because with 
uh, Lover Boy. The it's totally so different from this movie. I mean, it is a comedy about Patrick Dempsey is a pizza boy who makes deliveries. Let's say to women who order pizza from him specifically. So it seems like the Pickle Man, but with pizza. My point here being, she showed that she could have totally been a work for hire director as well. Mm. So she could have had this whole career that plenty of men think of the men, the auteurs who have had these kind of careers where they make one for them, one for us. You know, she could have been knocking out like an after hours like Scorsese in the eighties, mm. and then coming back with like a personal project, a like Glass Temptation, which would be her crossing. Delancey to make a very strange connection. But it's just the idea that that was not even an option. That was not a road any female took or was allowed to take, I should say. But just how much we miss out on as, as viewers for not having that in historical kind of archives and not having that those movies that undoubtedly would have been so much more interesting if women had made them for the most part. Well, luckily, Crossing Delancey is in the HBO Max <laughs> archive <laughs> waiting to be enjoyed. Yeah, show HBO you love it. <laughs> Last call? Absolutely, let's do it. Okay, every episode we end with a wrap-up segment where we ask our guests, in this case Carrie, for the last thing you watched recently and then a quick staff recommendation of something you would put out there for other people to consume. So Carrie, what is something that you watched recently that was not this? I went to a 35mm screening of All That Jazz. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> so great to see it on a big screen. What felt different on a big screen to me? Just all of the theatrical numbers. Like, just the opening scene is just... It's insane <laughs> to watch all those dancers and the, like, match cuts. And, oh, my God. It was one of those moments where I was like, I love movies. <laughs> I love sitting in a dark room with a bright wall. <laughs> yeah. Good. I love how every pod episode we try to explain <laughs> what the title of the magazine means. It's a movie theater. I love it. Um, and then a staff recommendation. Still me. <laughs> As our sole guest. Bergman Island. Ooh. I think it's on Amazon Prime now. It is, yeah. Really, really, really enjoyed it. What did you like about it? Great storytelling. I'm a sucker for like metatextual shit yeah. where it's like, this is a movie about this. And then halfway through, you're like, but actually, it's a movie about this and about <laughs> this. Like the Russian doll of movies. Yeah. I really want to see that one big time. Great needle drop moment, also, I will say. Ooh. Great ABBA needle drop moment. Ooh, okay. exciting. Yeah, doubly excited. Yeah. Big year for Anders Danielson Lee, the Norwegian actor. Oh, okay. I don't even know who that is. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> hot, hot Norwegian actor. He's hot. Oh, he's hot in this movie. He's Peter Rygott versus him. Where Where is he on the spectrum there? Why choose? <laughs> okay. That's a good answer. All right. And that does it for our Crossing Delancey episode. We want to thank our guest, Carrie Corgan. Carrie, where can listeners find you online if they'd like to hear more about you or read some of your stuff? Probably the easiest would be Twitter. I'm extremely online. My at handle is just my name. Well, that's very easy. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this month's episode of the Bright Wall Darkroom Podcast. To find us all in writing and read hundreds of essays that explore the relationship between movies and the business of being alive, please visit us at www.brightwalldarkroom.com. The theme of this month's publication is Generations. Keep an eye on the website for a new slate of thoughtful essays. And next month for December, we will be doing a issue titled FUBAR. If you don't know what that acronym means, go ahead and look it up. But that'll be coming in December. And if you don't already, please follow us. Give us a good rating. Leave comments. All that stuff helps us to reach more cinephiles. And that is always our goal. For announcements about our next episode in BWDR Publications, you can follow us on Twitter. It's just at BWDR. You can also keep up with what we're watching personally or what the site's covering in general on Letterboxd, where we have a fancy pro account now. And the page is just brightwall slash darkroom. 
In addition to rating and reviewing, the best way to support this podcast is to visit patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Our theme music is composed by our own Chad Perman. Thank you, and join us for next month's episode. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Perfect. And just 100%, it's Delancey, not Delancey. Delancey, it's just Delancey. It's Delancey. <laughs> are you serious? It's I want to make sure. Yeah. These are You guys, that's just a street like Delancey. near where you guys live. Yeah. For me, it's like, I don't know what any of that is. South of Houston. Yeah. South of Houston. <laughs> yeah. Far from heaven. Delancey. Delancey. I'm going to say it that way. As the French say. I like the French. <laughs>